0: the anyway, the Lord be with you and also with your spirit blessed Lord who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning grant us so to hear them read, mark, learn and inwardly digest them that by patience and the comfort of your holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in our savior Jesus Christ who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. (coughs) We're going to be looking at the the book of Job from now till um, well, not quite the end of May, but I think five sessions, including this one, um, which hardly seems enough. I want to start by reading Job chapter 1, the verse... Five verses. In the land of Uz, Uz not Oz. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned seven thousand sheep, three thousand camels, five hundred yoke of oxen, and five hundred donkeys and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the peoples of the East. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of fasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, <coughs> thinking, perhaps my children have sinned of course, Um, and curse God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. Uh, This is a difficult book. It kind of starts out seeming like it's going to be, oh, this this seems like a nice story. I'll read this. Um, It's not difficult in the sense of hard to read, although uh, sometimes in the dialogues, uh, tedious is not a fair word. Um, there's actually a literary point to the way the author uses uh, Job's friends to drive home again and again and again and again this point. It's also difficult in the sense that it's hard to absorb its full significance and hard for many of us to fit our standard way of how the world works into it. Job is about suffering but it's It's not just about suffering, and it's not about suffering the way we typically think. Oh, I'm sorry, Joel. I'm glad you remember that. I have to start over. No, I'm just. I'm not going to start over. Um, The Book of Job is one of the more difficult books of the Bible. There, and now I'll skip ahead. So many of us heard of the proverbial patience of Job. I was told once in college I had the patience of Job. I I said thank you, but inwardly, of course, I was highly amused. But when we go on to actually read the book, we meet a man whose first extended speech, uh, that's in chapter 4, I think. Uh, No, chapter 3, excuse me. I'm going to read part of that. His first extended speech is a long poetic curse of the day he was born. Uh, and he's serious, uh, ending with an expression of his longing for death. He's a man who will argue with his friend. What strength do I have that I should still have hope? What prospects that I should be patient? That's Job 6.11. And he cries out to God, I loathe my very life. Therefore, I will give free rein to my complaint and speak out in the bitterness of my soul. Job 10.1. So how did this man get to be called patient? I mean, those are just samples. That's another one why it's difficult to read. Job goes also on and on, chapter after chapter, very eloquently, expressing and lamenting his situation to God. And, of course, why not? And we'll find out why not in a few moments. The reason he got to be called patient was primarily from an inadequate translation in the King James Version of James 5.11. I'm not knocking the King James Version. It's actually a very good translation. But like every translation, it has its flaws. The Greek word it translates as patience really means endurance or perseverance. And almost every modern translation now reflects that fact, including the new King James Version, which no longer uses the word patience, but uses endurance. I, I think it says endurance. It might say perseverance. And Job certainly did endure, though not quietly or without complaint. He did not suffer in silence. <clears throat> of course, everybody says men are like that anyway. Um, but his almost unimaginable personal loss and physical agony were compounded by his emotional and spiritual anguish. An anguish that arose from the unbearable tension he felt between his faith And he really did have faith. We already know that. He was sincere. He was a man of integrity. And he was a man who, in the sight of God, was blameless and upright. An unbearable tension between that and his personal experience. An experience of a world turned hostile and wisdom that failed. So imagine all the bad things that have happened excuse me, in your life. Um, The older you are, the more this example would work. Uh, But crammed into one weekend, or, you know, not even a whole week. Uh, The loss of uh, parents. um, My brother first pointed this out to me that we're, we're orphans, we're adult orphans. I've been an orphan for, well, since 1999. And if you live long enough, you'll. we all become orphans. Um, I've had physical pain and suffering, suffered financial loss, nothing like Job. And it's been spread out over many, many, many years. Job lost it all, and he lost it all in a very short period. Um, and this is not just a parable, by the way. There are – I don't want to call it literary license, but there are aspects of this, all the words of Job's friends are probably not the exact historical words that he said. And there are literary devices, but this is a historical story. This is a real man, and I'll talk a little bit about it in a minute. So this is a tension we all feel at times, the difference between what we expect to happen because we have faith and what actually happens in experience. Um, and, And this varies between people, of course, but it is something we all experience. Because we all want to believe the world will always work in orderly and predictable ways. I, I know I do. I do not have OCD, and I, I don't want to really make fun of it, because um, there are people who really do. Uh, but but I'm I have tendencies that I really do believe if I can order uh, my personal life in certain ways, including rearranging. The dishes in the dishwasher after my wife has already loaded it. No, I'm not kidding. Um, be, because there's just a rational way to do it. <laughs> a logical that, that, Right. And if I do this, then the universe will be in harmony. Um, I can control the universe by the way I arrange the things in my life. And I know I think that way. And so I, I ha, do not have full-blown, obsessive-compulsive disorder. I'm just a very organized person. <laughs> okay. Um, and, and so we want to believe that the world is going to work in an orderly and predictable way. As we do certain things, certain things will happen. Faith and integrity and wisdom will always be rewarded. And this is the kind of world that the book of Proverbs seems to be describing. We just finished a lengthy Uh, A set of sessions on the book of Proverbs, and that's the world that Proverbs seems to describe, although I've already given you some fair warning about this. So the book of Proverbs teaches us how to navigate life successfully, not arrange objects, uh, financially, relational, morally, and spiritually. The focus in Proverbs is on how things usually work. I pointed this out when we went over Proverbs. They're, they're not promises. It's not how things must work or how they always work. Even Proverbs recognizes in places that life doesn't always work the way it should. Like passing clouds, briefly excure, obscuring the sun. Sometimes the wicked get wealthy. The poor are oppressed. Governments rule badly. And the righteous may suffer. Um, you can see that pattern on the right-hand side, I mean the left-hand side. Uh, the path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shining every brighter till the full light of day. Day by day, in every way, the world is getting better. Um, let me this. So while Proverbs acknowledges these exceptions to the rules of wisdom, the book of Job, uh, exemplified on the right-hand side, confronts us with the hard limits of wisdom. We really never know as much as we think we do know, even if we've read the book of Proverbs thoroughly. The book of Job examines the meaning from where human understanding completely fails. Uh, I don't know what's going on sometimes. From this perspective, the book of Job examines the meaning of human suffering, the justice, sovereignty, and purposes of God, and the proper human response to God, which we will get to those eventually. So, the author does not present rational arguments. This is not a book of philosophy. I have nothing against philosophy, it's one of my areas. I've taught philosophy, I read philosophy. But, you know, philosophy ultimately fails too. He doesn't give proverbial wisdom. There are some proverbial-like sayings in and Job, but it is not a book of Proverbs or pious platitudes. He does share pious platitudes, but he puts them in the mouth of Job's uh, antagonists who are called his friends. What he does is he tells a story that reveals both the mystery and hope at the heart of reality. Now, for some of you right now, the suffering of Job may hit home and and we may realize it more. But I suspect for most of us, 21st century Americans and Westerners in general, it's hard for us to imagine the kind of agony and tension he went through, and that's why I ask you to imagine all the suffering in your, wor- in your world and your life compressed into one weekend. Uh, and those of us who are older and you know, things start to break down eventually, uh, but we also suffer loss of all kinds of different kinds. And Paul refers to an aspect of this, not the whole thing, is the mystery of iniquity. Things just don't work out the way they are supposed to. The world is not the way it was meant to be or the way God originally intended to be, nor in fact the way it's going to be. But there's also hope in the midst of all of this. So let me start sharing that story. So the man Job, the man who this story is about, was an historical figure who most likely lived in the patriarchal period perhaps as early as 2000 B.C., We know this because the the name Job is attested in not Israelite documents, but similar language, uh, Ugaritic and Semitic, attested in ancient documents from about that time. They find the name of Abraham, too. I'm not saying they're referring to the Job we know or the Abraham we know, but this was a name during that period. But apart from the Bible, we don't know anything else about him even though the story of Job may have existed in oral form outside Israel for many years before the biblical author brought it into present written form. I, I didn't... It would be a digression when it comes up, but I went, So how did this man know God? Well, there are examples, of course, of people who seem to have a relationship with God outside israel's covenant and israel's life Uh, melchizedek is the one that primarily first comes to mind and it's hypothetically possible the bible doesn't say so that there were other men other than abraham uh, who had a faith uh, in the one true god but of course god only called abraham so job was a god fearer he was a monotheist So the book of Job is a carefully constructed literary masterpiece. its It almost makes me want to learn Hebrew, but um, not really. Um, (laughs) Hebrew is very difficult. First thing you realize is you have to read it backwards. Well, it's not really backwards. It's just the other way. You read it from right to left instead of left to right. So you literally start at what we would consider the back of a book. But it is written, and a lot of it comes across in English, but of course not all of it. Um, It was written by an unknown author. We don't know who wrote it, but an Israelite most likely living in the 7th or 8th century. And the reason we know that is because Isaiah and some later prophets seem to have been strongly influenced by the book of Job. And it's likely that Job came first. So it was written at least before the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah was, you know, the middle 700s. It's written as a extended set of poetic dialogues and monologues with a prose prologue and a prose epilogue. And it has a lot of the characteristics of Hebrew poetry that I mentioned uh, way back when in the introduction to wisdom. So you can compare some of that Uh, Most modern English translations try to get across some of the aspects of Hebrew poetry. Of course, they can't do a complete job. But it is a story. Uh, It has a setting, a cast of characters, uh, a plot with conflict and tension. I think I'm on the right slide. Um, And a resolution. So it's not exactly like uh, if you can remember your English, uh, your literature and composition, it kind of has that uh, schematic of a plot in a story that you've seen in literature and composition classes. Not exactly like that, but, but actually pretty close. So the author uses many literary and poetic devices. Nonetheless, this is a true story. And if you're wondering, where is that up there? Well, it's not. This is my transition parts. The author uses many literary and poetic devices. Nevertheless, it is a true story. I'm convinced of that. Uh, It's no less a revelation of God than the Gospels. So let's look first at the cast of characters. Job, obviously. He was a wealthy and respected tribal leader. He, he had some characteristics, of course, of Abraham. Um, not a nomadic like Abraham was initially because Job, uh, he lived near a town obviously because of the way some of the scenes happen in the dialogues. Uh, but his wealth was uh, measured in livestock. Uh, he did dwell in a tent at some point. Although he was well respected in whatever town he lived in, his homeland, Uz, was the region east of Jordan, exactly where we don't know. It was from Aram, but think of, I think it's southwestern Syria, all the way down to Edom, which is just east of the Dead Sea. So that was the land of Uz. Though he wasn't an Israelite, he was a monotheist who feared God. He acts as a priest for his family. Um, Moses's father-in-law did that, uh, Abraham did that, which was typical in the patriarchal period, and he scrupulously observed uh, regular atoning sac- sacrifices for his children. And, of course, maybe we should do that um, because, who knows, they may have sinned in their hearts. Um. The next character, and this is in order of appearance, is God. Uh, in the prologue, God is Yahweh. Uh, typically translated, the Lord, in most English translations, if it's Lord in all caps, the word behind it is probably Yahweh. Yahweh is the covenant name of God, and it is not exactly that, but related to uh, the hebrew word for to be and it's not really translated but it roughly means uh, he who is Uh, it was similar to what god said to abraham i am who i am so god is the one who is he just is and this is the covenant name of yahweh with only two exceptions and i think i list where they are there Only two exceptions, only the generic names for God, that's El and Eloah. Only those are used in the dialogues uh, until the Lord Yahweh answered Job out of the storm in the first verse of chapter 38. And that's because Job and his friends, again, they are not part of the covenant of Israel. They worship one God, and the author wants to show us, That this one God is the God of Israel because Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, alone is God, the God of all, the one true sovereign creator and Lord. There is only one God and he revealed himself specially to Israel. The next character is Hasatan, the Satan. It's got the definite article all the way through Job, so I'm probably going to say it that way. Uh, When I refer to uh, the accuser, he is an angelic being, uh, but one whose words indicate he is contemptuous and insolent towards God. His name is his role. He accuses Job of self serving devotion and God of buying worship. Despite some, there are some academic arguments to the contrary which I won't go into unless you really want to in the question and answer period. Uh, I don't think there's any reason to uh, identify the Satan here, not to identify the Satan here with the same Satan of the New Testament who opposes Christians and believers in the New, New Testament. One reason that this is probably the case is that even before the close of the Old Testament, I believe in the book of, it's either 1st or 2nd Chronicle, Uh, He is simply referred as Satan. The definite article has dropped. And so (laughs) Satan has become a proper name. It's just like we refer to Jesus Christ. He is actually Jesus the Christ, which means Jesus the Messiah. Um, Technically, Christ isn't his last name, but even Paul refers to Christ almost as though it were a proper name. So this is Satan, the Satan we all know, and I won't say hate, but um, uh, we, we definitely have antipathy towards. So Job's wife has um, – wasn't exactly a cameo appearance. She does have a line. Uh, she appears only once in the prologue. Her words curse God and die indicate her role resembles Eve's in tempting her husband. Uh, Cursing God and die could be uh, an encouragement to commit suicide or her realizing that if you curse God, well, certainly you were going to die. Uh, Job's friends, uh, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, have the role of representing a rigid and rather heartless adherence to conventional wisdom. It's like they did take the book of Proverbs as promises in a very mechanical way, like karma. Particularly the doctrine of retribution. The teaching of that, uh, and that is the teaching that in this lifetime, the righteous and the wicked will receive precisely their due. Now that's one thing, I I won't go into detail about it, because although there are hints of a resurrection uh, and... Uh, some idea of an afterlife there isn't much so in Job's mind and in his friends minds God's rewards and blessings and God's curses and punishment are meted out in this lifetime and this is why the doctrine of retribution is so important to the, the, the system of these men The righteous will always be rewarded and sinners will always suffer. (coughs) They reasoned that it was a logical equation. Job suffered, therefore he must be a sinner. Initially, at least one of them, Eliphaz, seems to have some sympathy. He is an Edomite from the city of Tema, which uh, again was in that area uh, east east of the Dead Sea, a a dry area. So he's Eliphaz, Eliphaz the Temanite. He's respectful at first, yet eventually he accuses Job of a list of sins that Job has not committed. (coughs) And there's no evidence that he's committed. He he assumes it in chapter 22, verses 4 through 11. Bildad literally tells his children, Job, that his children got what they deserved in chapter 8, verse 4, and warns Job he faces a similar fate. Zophar recounts the awful fate of the wicked, and he places Job in that class in chapter 20. Um, Elihu, or Elihu, is a younger man who has held his peace in deference to his elders. Uh, it's not exactly comedy relief because the tension is really held throughout the book of Job until the Lord speaks. But this – you can imagine this, this blustery, angry young man who's about to explode with all the knowledge he thinks he has <coughs> more, more than his elders. Some things never change. And who was it that said um, – well, it was either Einstein or Abraham Lincoln," yeah. said. So, maybe Mark Twain. That uh, when when uh, I was eighteen, I thought my old man, you know, knew nothing. But you know, when I turned twenty-one, I, it was amazing how much he had learned by then. <laughs> so anyway, so uh, Elihu thinks he knows a thing or two, or three, or four. Or five or six. He goes on for several chapters. Um, In the first five verses of chapter 32, uh, when he first appears, he is described as angry three times, Uh, actually, four in the Hebrew. He's uh, angry at Job for justifying himself rather than God, and he's angry at the friends for failing to refute Job, thus condemning God. They have not justified God. So Elihu intends his words to rectify this situation to correct Job and justify God. So those are the characters, and we might not get too much farther than that. I did want to leave some time for questions. I'll, I'll, we'll do the plot. So this is the plot. There is a prose prologue and a prose epilogue that tell – they set the scene, and then they provide the final resolution – And in between, you have Job's opening lament after all that he suffers, the friend's counsel and Job's replies, an interlude on wisdom, which is written by the author, uh, Job's final complaint, the speeches of Elihu, which prepare us for for God's answer to Job, and then finally Job repents. Although I will, uh, (coughs) spoiler alert, Job does not repent of any sins that he had been accused of. Um, we'll talk about what he repents of and what that means later. This is a, I think this is in the notes. Yeah. <clears throat> so this is how you can schematicize size. Uh, this is, the, the way it's set up is original to me, but, but the whole idea of how Job is organized, um, <clears throat> of course, is standard scholarly analysis. So I did not invent this. So you have an intro in the prologue. The conflict continues until the conflict, until the climax when God answers Job, and then finally there is a resolution, and it goes prose, poetry, prose. And so we are going to look first at the prologue. Um, I'm going to go ahead and pause right after this because, like I said, we're, we're already up on 1140, I think, and I don't really want to go over So the prologue, which is chapters 1 and 2, sketches quickly the setting and the situation. And I just read that. The land of Uz, the man Job. Job is described as a genuinely pious man who was blameless and upright, who feared God and shunned evil and acts as a priest for his family. Now this portrayal prepares us to know and accept that Job's suffering is not due to any guilt of his. Uh, That this is innocent suffering. Uh, We can discuss the meaning of that. Uh, Well, we can discuss it right here in a minute if you want to ask about it. Job is presented as a paradigm of the wise and righteous man who is blessed by God with family and wealth. And you almost expect this to go from strength to strength and then end with happily ever after. And if we didn't already all know some parts of the story of Job, we might be expecting that. Um, I'm going to pause there. I I know I'm only halfway through, but it's 11.41, and we've only got four minutes left. So I'm going to ask if anybody has any questions yet. I know I haven't covered a lot, but maybe. Yes? Why is it set at this point in the Bible? Is there a reason given that? Okay, why is it in this point in the Bible? Um, It's in this Bible. It's in because it's... It's at the head of what are considered the poetic books of the Bible. It's considered wisdom literature too, but it goes Job, Psalms, Proverbs, uh, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. These are the poetic books. I, I don't know of any other specific reason that it was placed there, although it does come after the, uh, the history of Israel books, which ends with Esther and Nehemiah and the post-exilic uh, history of Israel. Does that argue for the? I know you don't like that argument but that it's a, like an extended metaphor and that that uh, you know it's a story about. Israel. So you're thinking maybe it's about Israel. Yeah. Um, I don't know that it's an extended metaphor about Israel. I mean, I mean, now don't get me wrong. I mean, I think Revelation is a true story too, but it contains highly symbolic language and exactly what the true story is, is sort of controversial, isn't it? Um, But I do think uh, we are intended, the Israelites and the lessons intended to take that as as lessons applied to us like a parable. It's it's not a parable, but it's parable-like. And it also uses literary devices, figurative language, and it uses metaphors. But the exact reasoning behind why the, the Hebrews, the Israelites placed it there, you know, God knows. It's simply because it's at the head. And it's not the oldest poetic. Some of the Psalms, I mean, some of the Psalms are post-exilic, but some of, them, some of the Psalms that say uh, they are of David are actually written by David. Not necessarily all of them, because the superscriptions are not original to the text. So, Does that answer your question at all? Yeah, that was just a long way to say, I don't really know, John. <laughs> second, second question is a little bit maybe okay. less theological, but has it ever been sort of analyzed almost like a comic opera kind of thing? Um, there are, not a comic opera, but in the, in the original sense of comedy. Story with a happy ending. This is a comedy, but it's, it's, it's more like a – it's not really a comic drama, but a dramatic comedy, I like guess you, you would say. From, you go from the guy just getting blitzed with everything, complete desolation, and then immediately afterwards you have his friends coming up. They see him from far away, and they're so – They put dust on their heads. There there are some, I'll just say, some scholars, um, I could mention my name, but I won't, who actually view Elihu as comedy relief. That the people reading this, you know how sometimes uh, in in movies and books, things are so tense and dark and and hard to deal with that they'll throw in a character or a situation that's... That relieves the tension for a while and some people, some uh, serious Old Testament scholars, um, smarter than me when it comes to the Hebrew scriptures, uh, have argued that Elihu is comedy relief and his bombastic posturing and his blowhard would be seen as comic relief. I respectfully disagree, but… I think he's meant to be preparation for God to speak. He's, he's the last how-dare-you-speak-this-way person. Um, but just so you know, there are some people who have that opinion, so you're in good company. So, yes. Not the whole thing is comic, but particularly Elihu is. And, and of course, it's, it's a comedy in the traditional sense like tragedy. There are very few, most of what's called tragedy now, I, I got to digress. Most of what's called tragedy is not tragedy. For tragedy, you have to have a hero who, who has a, a destructive flaw. He meets a nemesis and he comes to a bad end. It's not just an accident or a catastrophe. It's both Shakespearean and Greek tragedies are, are like that. anyway, uh, any other questions so we 've set the scene um, it is a dark if, if it 's a comedy it 's a dark comedy and it 's meant it 's meant to tell us that um, and i 'll just do the setup that that life can be pretty dark and seriously not work at all the way you had hoped, planned, and actually strived for This happens. At least in small ways to everyone. To some of it, it happens in serious ways, and to some of us, it happens in devastating ways. And this is why we can learn from Job. So we'll pick up, we'll finish that next week, and then I'm actually going to go on to lesson 10, too, But I did not finish today. But anyway, right. Okay. Thank you very much.